everybody. This is Jen Kleinhens. And I'm Rob Vose. And you're listening to another episode of Everybody Hates Your Brand, a podcast where we talk about our thoughts and opinions on marketing, from customer experience to brand and everything in between. Join us today as we talk about what makes the Netflix experience great. So you want to talk about Netflix. Uh, it seems like a really relevant brand uh uh, has been even more relevant this year, given that no one can leave their houses at various times of the uh, yes. of the of the year. Uh, and I would love to see, pretty do some digging on this usage stats of what happens has happened this year to Netflix and many of the other streaming platforms, because they're on upward trajectory anyway. I imagine they've given mm. been given a turbo charge. Um, so yeah, we want to talk about a few things from experience perspective, behavioral science perspective, data science perspective that makes Netflix great. Just a bit of a thing up front though. Um, if Netflix didn't have decent content, none of this would matter. Mm. <laughs> none of what we're about to talk about would make any difference whatsoever. Mm. Uh, so there's a whole separate conversation to be had by probably people who aren't in marketing experience talking about the content and the, some of the great... Oh, I have things to say about the content. Well, I know, but like <laughs> some, in terms of the way they commission content and create yeah. content and all that kind I of stuff. I still have things to say about that. Which I think is <laughs> astonishing. They've done some amazing things. Um, uh, some amazing series, some amazing cultural moments have come through Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Netflix as a brand, the idea of uh, it's coming to our sort of lexicon of it's almost like a default for yeah. sitting and watching streaming, you know, content mm. these days, isn't it? You know, mm. it, um, I remember when it was friggin' DVDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they started doing the streaming thing, and I was like, what this is, is cool, this? but they only had like a few things. Buffering. Buffering. But if you look at them now, the, the, and, the, and the powerhouse they've become, and the, and the, you know, the brands they work with from you know the Marvels and all that kind of stuff, and the content mm-hmm. they have is pretty astonishing. I mean, but yeah, fifteen percent of the world's web traffic goes know, to Netflix at any given time, and it's as I've, I've seen stats that say it's as much as a third of the, the world's web traffic, Just like after nine p.m. Yeah, and there are, I don't know if there are any stats anywhere on the market share of streaming platforms. I doubt there is. I doubt there's a standardized. Yeah, this is the difficulty because you don't have something like a Nielsen yeah. rating system and. Part of what makes like Amazon Prime, Netflix, Disney Plus, all these um, really powerful is the data, and they don't want to give away their data. So actually, yeah. I found because um, we'll link to it in the show notes, mm. but I've I've written a few articles now about Netflix, um, and it's difficult because you get proxies for things, you can yeah. kind of guesstimate. But as far as I could tell, there wasn't really like a one stop shop for you know mm. Netflix has. Fifty percent of the has as many share. users because because you want to do share by users, share by. Um, and many people have minutes. more than one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, we you know. And anyway, we're going off track here. But yeah. I think I think the key point here is that the the content and the content creation process and all those kind of things is a is a separate thing mm-hmm. uh, from this conversation. We're going to mainly talk about how mainly how the content is presented, how people find the content, mm-hmm. uh, and and why the ways in which Netflix do that work. Yeah. I so, mean, because I think to be fair, like it is a streaming service, but really it's a it's a content. Uh, sort of a curation platform. Yeah, and I think curation is a key word. Mm-hmm. And I think so when we start to get into the data science bit of it, it isn't just a black box. They do some really smart mm-hmm. stuff uh, when it comes to data science stuff. But I know, Jen, you've kind of got to come up with some, some behavioral science principles that you wanted to kind of talk through. So let's kind of do that, and we'll, I'll chip in as, as we go. So where do you want to start with Netflix? Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing, like as you we were saying about curation about Netflix is they are very conscious of the fact that personalization is basically what they exist to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So Reed Hastings, who's CEO of Netflix, um, 
has an interesting quote. So he said, if the Starbucks secret is a smile when you get your latte, Netflix's secret is that the website adapts to the individual's tastes. Mm. So I think they get that this is like a point of differentiation for them. Um, yeah. And I think they really get that if they do it wrong, there's ramifications. And if they get it right, um, it can really be positive. I think one of the really interesting things, just again, we're kind of laying the base here a little bit, but um, as a culture, they're very experiment driven. I think no surprise, they're very mm -hmm. data driven. But I think I was shocked when I was doing research on this to what level um, they're doing things. So like multivariate testing with thumbnails, for instance, I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so they personalize thumbnails. Yes, they can personalize thumbnails yeah. based on your location, where you are. And I think, sorry, just to, to back it up a little bit. So the, the behavioral science mechanic behind this, there's it's one of a few. Um, around personalization is something called the cocktail party effect. Um, and basically it's this idea that your brain will filter out information that's not relevant to you. So if I get on Netflix and I scroll through a bunch of movies that I don't care about, that aren't really for me, that aren't to my taste, yeah. it feels like it's a, it's an experience that has a lot of content, but not a lot of content for me. Yeah. And I think it's that key bit that gets people interested and kind of keeps them watching on Netflix. And it's called the cocktail party effect, to be clear, because the idea is essentially if you were a, because we all go to cocktail parties all the time these yes. days, but if you're at a cocktail party, all the conversations around you are just background noise. It's like, it's the teacher from Peanuts, whatever it was. <laughs> from the Peanuts, yes. And um, if you then, if you hear your name, all of a sudden your brain picks that up. Yeah, it, it, basically your brain will filter out to, information that's yeah. relevant to you, that it has deemed to be relevant to you. And it's it's basically analogous to, you know, digital environments. And in fact, Accenture did a lot of research around personalization, and they found that 50% of, or 56% of customers would rather buy from a retailer that recognizes them by name. 65% mm -hmm. of them would prefer to buy from a retailer who knows their purchase history and 58% of customers would prefer to buy from a retailer that recommends options based on their past purchases. All three of those things sound a lot like yeah. Netflix. Well, I've got some killer stats for you as well. Ooh, okay. And stat off. Um, their recommend, the recommendations, um, apparently, I don't know how they've calculated this, so you have mm -hmm. to take this with a pinch of salt, produce, pr produces $1 billion a year in terms of customer retention. That's interesting. I wonder how they came up with that number. And uh, something like 80% of Netflix's views come from recommendations mm -hmm. being put in front of people. I found a, a phenomenal article uh, by a guy called uh, David Chong, uh, who wrote it on Medium. He's part of the Towards Data Science group on Medium. Mm. And he, he explains in some detail, but not overly stretching detail, thank you, David, mm -hmm. uh, how... Netflix's recommender system works and the different layers of it and why mm -hmm. it's, things like why it's in rows so the idea is because it's in a row if you sit and stop and scroll through a row you're interested if you scroll straight past it you're not so they mm -hmm. can even use things like that so there's some really simple things like um category level stuff you know you've watched x category therefore you might be interested mm -hmm. in this category the stuff around the trending so the short-term trend stuff you would think is just stuff that's new mm -hmm. but it's not they also apply filters on top of that in terms of is it a seasonal thing? So we'll get a whole bunch of Christmas stuff, yeah. I'm sure. Um, but also global events like coronavirus and elections mm -hmm. and all mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. They do things like um, the continue watching bit. Mm -hmm. Again, it's still personalised based on um, the probability of them to continue using watching those things. Like when was the last time you watched it? You know, what was the point? Did you abandon it? What device were you watching mm -hmm. it on? 
like the level of detail is astonishing, like video to video rank, which is quite interesting. So collaborative filtering, which is kind of, um, there's two forms, and I'm sorry any data scientists here about this, there's two forms, there's person, person-based collaborative filtering and product-based collaborative filtering. So person-based collaborative, co collaborative filtering. filtering. Okay. So what it basically says is a person, one would say, people like you mm -hmm. also like this. Mm -hmm. And that's great, but it's hugely data intensive because mm -hmm. they've got to understand you as a customer. And they have to find other And there's going to be a whole bunch of data yeah. that sits behind that, all that kind of stuff. But there's also product-based collaborative filtering, which mm -hmm. is these are similar products to the one that you have bought or are interested in, which obviously mm -hmm. is a lot less data intensive in terms of understanding the customer's mm -hmm. behavior so they use both of those uh both of those things and then the bit that i find fascinating on top of that there's a whole bunch of other stuff as well but the bit that i find fascinating and i'm always really sketchy about recommendation engines because they're black boxes mm -hmm. and i want to know and there is research to show that people want to see the cause and effect they want to know where that recommendation came from especially in a complex system sure. like a recommendation engine but they have something where they have to show sort of evidence to support mm -hmm. why this is being put in front of somebody mm -hmm. so that's where that recommendations you know the star or percentage ranking comes mm -hmm. from and they use that and they use a whole bunch of stuff to kind of show yeah. and even the names of the categories because you watch this because mm -hmm. you did that because you did the other it's so important that they do that, that they, and that's the bit that I like about it. And then they, the last thing I'll say is that, that recommendation engines are great, and I think a lot of the algorithms in our social networks fall foul of this, which is they present stuff that we think you want to watch, which is absolutely what mm -hmm. it should do. But Netflix also adds in stretch. Mm -hmm. It also says, this might be a little bit outside of your comfort zone, but mm -hmm. here's, because they know the more categories you're interested in, the more the better yeah. it is for them well interestingly now they have a shuffle feature as well like it's yes. like you can't figure out what to watch just then hit the shuffle back. and we'll just give you something random and i would assume that um that shuffle is personalized as well i mean who i don't know because honestly I like i think with a lot of the uh the recent sort of controversy around like living in a bubble like the facebook bubble yeah. or whatever um i kind of wonder if that's their solution for that Maybe. Is a, hey, let's just shake it up and show you maybe, like, what's popular across yeah. Netflix globally? Yeah. Like, what do we think, you know, you might like that mm. you haven't seen before? I think a lot of the things about recommendation engines I don't like, uh, mm. Netflix solved and, and, mm. and, and have done fantastically well. Yeah. Uh, same, same as, you know, much as I'm not a huge fan of Amazon, same with Amazon with their, their stuff, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, occasionally you'll get some stuff with Amazon, you're like, yeah. what? But again, there's clarity, you can see how they got from A to B. Yeah, um, I'm interested to see too, because I wonder if Netflix on any level, like, sells the data that they have about people. So like in the US, they have, they use a thing called a Q score. So like a celebrity mm -hmm. has a Q score. Um, it's it's kind of like we watched the movie Long Shot and they were yeah. and Charlize Theron was supposed to be you know figuring out if she was going to run for president. They were talking mm. about her Q score. Oh, you're really likable. Oh, people really know who you are, but you you know you have a weird laugh, so your Q score suffers. You know that kind of thing. So I wonder if Netflix is going to like Tom Cruise's agent or something and saying like, hey, we've got this platform to help you figure out yeah. like how likable, how well known, how mm. familiar are people with Tom Cruise or quite possibly. I think the other thing it helps them obviously do is commission. Yeah. What are we gonna what are we missing? What do we need? What have we we don't have yeah. enough it's interesting. romantic comedies, we don't have enough this and that yeah. and the other. You know? I mean there is still some level of like human creativity there. So oh, if you yeah. want to talk about creativity and machines a little bit. Um I do think that their data does help them figure out like what do they feel like is gonna be successful in terms of commissioned com uh, content. 
But there's still a secret sauce to it. I mean, if people mm. watch The Crown, you know, and then somebody, good. you know, creates, <laughs> I don't know, okay, people like historical mm. British dramas. So yeah. let's make a British, like a, a drama about Winston Churchill. Yeah. Well, if it's a crap TV show yeah. or it doesn't quite hit the same, you know, maybe people are interested in like female historical figures. But yeah. it's like, would you know that from looking at the data or is it a little bit of like we have a hypothesis and we'll commission yeah. something to test it? And I, possibly, but I also think what you've hit upon there is is that ridic- what I think is a ridiculous debate about creativity versus data. Mm. Which I think is absurd. Because I think it's, I think it's I th- a lot of creative people that don't want to learn how to yeah, use data I think and that's be probably creative fair. with it. But I, but I also think that they are, they misunderstand what data is for, mm-hmm. and they also look at things like stuff that like I hate, like um, programmatic yeah. display advertising and stuff like, which is you know all data driven and you mm-hmm. know templated and all that sort of stuff. My argument would be that data and insight finds and shapes the problem, creates the guidelines mm-hmm. within which you then let creative people go play so yeah. you, you're what what we do using data and insight is to and that's what planners do i guess is to kind of go okay based on the data based on what we know based on what people are doing what they're saying what they're, blah, 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 this is our insight this is mm-hmm. the problem we need to solve this is the, the the creative one said to me the scariest thing as a creative is a blank piece of paper mm. it's terrifying mm-hmm. like i don't know where to start so to me what data does is it provides a yeah. framework within which a creative can then go play. I, th- I think too many people don't understand data and are afraid of it, so they don't let it do what you're describing. Yes. They don't let it draw a framework in which to be creative. Instead, they go do whatever they want to do, and then they cherry pick a bunch of data, and they pretend that they're being data-driven, yeah. which is one of my pet peeves, to be yes. honest with you. I don't, I don't feel like... I don't feel like it's an ethical use of data, if you want my honest opinion. No, you shouldn't. I mean, we talked about this when Mark was on the... Mark Razzle was on the podcast yeah. about... You know, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be looking to prove yourself right. You should be looking to prove yourself wrong. Yeah, um, ideally. Ideally. Anyway, we've kind of gone off on a bit of a tangent there. Yes, but, we have. but anyway, so we personalization mm-hmm. is the thing that drives them, and they, from a data science perspective, it's they are doing some phenomenal stuff. I will link to that article because it's very very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, th- I think if we want to talk about a few other sort of behavioral yep. science things about their experience that I think are really interesting, um, is this idea of idleness aversion. So um, there's a principle called idleness aversion. And basically it says that people are happier when they're busy, even if they're forced to be busy. So I think like the good, um, the, a good analogy or good story for this is the story of the elevator and the wait time. <clears throat> so I, it's been referenced in a bunch of places. I don't know who Sounds actually like did Roald the Dahl book. Yes, the elevator and the, the wait time. The elevator and the wait time. Well, basically they have one of these big, if you've ever worked in one of these big giant like buildings with like sorting elevators and the whole thing you can Mm. wait a long time for an elevator i mean you could be down there for five to six minutes and this was the case in a particular building in new york and people were getting really antsy because that's a long time to wait for an elevator especially if you're late for a meeting or something um and what they found was to solve this problem they didn't actually have to make the elevators any faster they just had to put a mirror on the front of the elevator doors so while you're (laughs) waiting you were looking at yourself and all of a sudden yeah you were very entertaining for those five or six minutes, and it didn't seem like such a long wait. Was this pre-mobile phones as well? <laughs> oh, maybe. Uh, I would assume, yes. But it's an interesting it's, a, it's an interesting thing, yes, that you can be just that easily distracted. But. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so it, how Netflix is applying idleness aversion, and I would say sometimes to their detriment and sometimes to their benefit, um, would be things like auto-playing trailers. Mm-hmm. So this is something that they've actually given you the option now to turn off. But for a long time, Netflix defaulted to, you know, I'd hover over something 
and it would just start the sound, the mm-hmm. whole trailer for whatever show this was. And you only had to like be on it for just one little second. Yeah. And I, I would say that was, I mean, it's really a pet peeve for a lot of people. Um, now, they test a lot. Um, they're very they data-driven, very experiment-driven. So I have no doubt that for a long time, people were telling them they were irritated, but behaving in such a way that they were uh, they were achieving a goal or doing something that Netflix wanted them to do, probably watching stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that eventually they just listened to people complain enough about it. And it be- actually became a meme. So there's a tweet that I thought was really funny where somebody says, um, so Netflix says, should I play this movie? Me. No, no, I'm just looking at it for a second. Netflix, I'll put it on. Me, <laughs> I'm literally just reading what it is. Netflix, it's playing. Yeah. So that was basically everyone's experience. And I think they eventually were like, we can't keep doing this. This is terrible. Yeah. Um, but now, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, not something that they really do. But sometimes they'll play just like a little bit of motion on something. They'll change mm-hmm. something a little bit. So basically, again, you've got this sometimes really long period between the intention of putting on Netflix and actually deciding, or sometimes you never even get to decide. You're just like, I just want to see what's on. Yeah. Um, the thing that, that's smart, though, is that uh, they also, though, do, because I was understanding, I was reading about what they optimize against, and optimizing against hours or minutes watched is obviously what they're trying to, mm-hmm. that's like one of their core metrics. And the autoplay at the end of, a, mm-hmm. of, of an episode you know, the like, defaults. yeah, because you will just sit there, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I remember back in uh, when Daredevil first came out, I basically watched that in a day in Australia with the weekend. I was <laughs> well, interestingly, I think they found a balance between what asking if mm. that was the right metric, um, because it used to be that you mm. would watch Netflix and it would just infinite default yeah. play the next thing. I mean, you could sit there for eight hours and it yeah. would just default play the next episode. And then eventually they got to the point where, you know, you watch like three or four episodes and they say, are you still watching this? Yes. Because they think, you know, their cost obviously has a lot to do with like server, um, servers and like, you know, if you are just sitting there and you leave the TV on, like I used to do that all the time. I would clean the house and I would put on like Parks and Rec or The Office or whatever and just let it roll and not Mm. really be paying attention to it. And I think from their perspective, you you as a customer weren't getting the value out of Netflix, but they were still having to pay the cost. Yeah. I think that's why... It's a are... good compromise between the two. Sort totally. Of, yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. So that's idleness aversion. Um, what else was... And defaults, actually. We and just defaults. defaults. Yeah, we talked defaults, too. Default. It's funny, because defaults... When we talk about behavioral science, to me, defaults are like one of the most, if not the most powerful mm-hmm. in terms of that level of inertia and that we just find default. Yeah. Anyway, what was the next one? Uh, yeah, so just one more. Um reciprocity is an interesting one so reciprocity is one of uh robert robert cialdini's like principles mm-hmm. of influence and yes it is cialdini um i looked it we up talked about it. he's been on this podcast a few times in in not name himself and in spirit. yes in spirit yes. um so basically it reciprocity is a social norm of responding to positive action with another positive action so it's like when someone does you a favor you feel indebted mm-hmm. regardless of if you like hate them, you still mm-hmm. feel indebted to them. You still feel like, oh, this mm-hmm. person did me a favor, so I should do something for them. So reciprocity is a really interesting one for Netflix. Because actually they went out and did some research and they asked people, um, quote, like, what's the one thing you would like to know more about before signing up for Netflix? And the most popular answer was knowing all of the movies and TV shows available. Now, interestingly, they took this response to a survey and they said, okay, well, why don't we just 
like show you all the content. Let me just, mm -hmm. you know, flick around and we'll try some things. Um, we'll show you the complete catalog. So actually this ended up being a failed experiment. So maybe a good example of applying an insight, but as a hypothesis, not saying, well, 46% of people said they wanted to see everything. So, you know, because they said that it must be true. They yeah, tested yeah. it with behavior, which is the key bit if you want to apply behavioral science or anything or data yeah. really is you've got to experiment because people lie they don't even know they're lying they lie research is a hypothesis <laughs> to be tested not totally a fact. yeah so they you know they redid the whole thing um you know they they showed you could you know do your search and you could see everything and they actually found that it was a failure in the in the grand scheme of things and their winning experiment was um basically giving customers just a sneak peek of the content so if you look um, I'm going to try, try to describe an image on a podcast, mm. which is never fun. Um, basically, instead of being able to scroll through every single bit of content before you sign up, it's just a quick like like a image of really popular content. And then it says, see what's next, watch anywhere, cancel anytime, join free for a month. So actually, they found that there were different levers. Mm. Um, so joining free for a month, that's an example of reciprocity. So instead of just kind of saying like, here's everything, do you want to sign up? Mm -hmm. They were saying like, hey, you can join and see everything. And here's a sneak peek. And we'll give you a free month to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So you can actually, instead of clicking on the content and being disappointed by the fact that you can't watch it, okay, all of a sudden now you can mm -hmm. go through everything. And we know because of the default effect, which we talked about earlier, most people will not cancel their subscription. Yeah, it's, menu. Yes. Would you, it's interesting that we've talked about choice overload in the past. And we talked about the idea that loads and loads of choices creates interest, but it doesn't create conversion. Yes. So there's probably an element of that sitting in there as well, which is they know that people will go, oh, wow, that's a lot. And then maybe one of the reasons they're looking at all this stuff is not converted. It's like, oh, my God, that's so much stuff. Yeah. By doing that, and then obviously when you – they solve what's called um, the cold start problem from a personalization perspective by asking people questions about the stuff they're interested in. Mm -hmm. So once they get into that, then they can curate and they can limit the yeah. selection. So they kind of – they're kind of that choice overload effect. They're, they're, they're kind of skating over, which I thought was yeah. quite interesting. I think it's an interesting one to that point is like, you're going to see if you can go through all the content, like Netflix's USP is also their like Achilles heel. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. when you have all the content in the world, it's the Amazon issue, right? Like yeah, yeah. you can buy anything that there is. Now, people don't want to, they think they do. They want to browse, mm. they want to look around, they're like, oh, let me look at every blouse, let me look at yeah. 5,000 blouses. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, to your point, like people just will not make a decision if they've got too many options. Mm. And they have to be able to say like, okay, based on what I'm seeing, based on, for instance, like the top 10 is yeah. a great way that they, um, they curate mm. um, basically like what mm. everybody's seeing. So it's like a social mm. proof bit okay, well, it's the top 10. I've narrowed it down. I can choose between 10 things because yeah. I can tell you off the bat, I don't want five of them. Uh -huh. Three of them I've already seen and two of them look interesting. So let me choose between those two. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people, human beings really need information to be chunked yes. down for them to be able to compare and make a decision. Yeah, I, I just think Netflix is a great example of a brand that does things right in the sense of mm -hmm. they experiment, they use research as a creating hypothesis to be tested. They mix behavioral and data science mm -hmm together brilliantly mm -hmm. um they've obviously they've realized that content and the exploration and curation of content is what they do mm -hmm. so they've invested obviously heavily from a content perspective but they clearly have invested a huge amount into machine learning data scientists that kind of stuff as well and they are just an extraordinary uh extraordinary 
group when it comes to that kind of stuff. I don't know anybody who's doing this as, you know. Amazon. Well, Amazon, <laughs> yeah. But there's not many people who do it like this. And I, I think they do a phenomenal, phenomenal job. So that's it for this episode of Everybody Hates Your Brand. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find show notes, resources, and more episodes on our website, everybodyhatesyourbrand.com. But before we go, let's leave on a positive note and let's share what we're loving right now. So Rob, what you got this week? Well, as you know, as a, as a writer tonight, uh, oh uh, he posted something on his LinkedIn page, um, which is a video, basically 17 slides that every marketer needs to know about television. And uh, he did this thing It's a, on a Swedish, it looks like a TV show. I don't think it is a TV show, but it's very professional. And he actually speaks Swedish at the beginning. I didn't even know he spoke Swedish, but um, it's not all in Swedish, so you don't have to speak the language. But it's a really uh, interesting look uh, at um, TV and why people who say TV is dying don't necessarily know what they're talking about and lots and lots of good, powerful stats to back that up. Um, You have to consider the source in some of these things, but I do think it's a a really interesting uh, look um, at the role of TV yeah, in everyone's lives, not just um, you know, people say young people aren't watching TV as much. That's true, but it's also where they see most video advertising, for example. He did some stats around that kind of stuff. Some really interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, it's about a forty-five minute long video, uh, and we'll post in the show notes. It's definitely worth a, a watch. Okay. What did you have, Jennifer? So I had a happy ending to a story of missteps. Let's put it right. that way. So Sherwin Williams, you may or may not know, is they're all there. I think they're in the UK as well, but they're an American paint company. So you go into Sherwin Williams oh, and they yeah. mix paints or whatever. Mm. And they had somebody who had been working for them for about three years. He was in college and he was mm. just kind of working at Sherwin Williams for three years, which is an insignificant amount of time. And the story goes that on his sort of <laughs> moments of his spare time, mm-hmm. he was using his employee discount to buy cans of paint. And this is very popular on TikTok to like put in different things of paint, like different uh, dyes in the paint and like stir it around and have people guess what what color is gonna come out. out. In some cases he was like, he didn't even know himself, did he? He was like playing around with something. No, he was just trying things. Um, So he he garnered 1.4 million followers, okay? Let me say that again, 1.4 million. Now to put that into perspective, I went on Sherwin Williams' Instagram, their Facebook and their LinkedIn, no. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and their Twitter, and combined them, and there was only 900,000 followers. Right. So he has created a TikTok all around Sherwin-Williams paints, and has gotten more followers than their uh-huh. entire social media team and agency combined. Uh-huh. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Like, give it to this kid, like high five. You He's would think you, they would give him a big high five. You would think that they would, I don't know, be partnering with him, or, mm. or think of a very smart way to yeah. figure it out. Instead, what happened is he got a knock on his door from HR, and HR said, we believe that you've been doing this on company time. We believe that customers may have suffered. Now, I, this is he said, she said, because who knows what was actually going on. If people saw him making TikToks while he was mixing their paint, like it all gets really mm-hmm. fuzzy. And you know, it's it, doing things on company time for your mm-hmm. own personal benefit is always a no-no. But instead of giving him a slap on the wrist and saying like, hey, you know, listen, let's find a way to work together because yeah. obviously you've created something of value, they fired him. Which I think I would, uh, many people face palmed at that. But there is a happy ending to is there? this Good. story. I'd heard, I didn't, I'd heard that initial bit. I didn't, didn't hear there was a happy yes. ending. So his name is Tony Polisano, Polisano, P-I-L-O-S-E-N-O. I apologize 
to Tony. Um, but he apparently received offers from nearly every major paint company. But he decided to work for a smaller competitor in Florida. So basically, Sherwin Williams has shot himself in the foot slightly. Uh, so now he's slightly. taken his 1.4 million people, who probably all hate Sherwin Williams More now. More than likely. Let's be yep. real. Um, and he has taken them, and he's going to work with them to develop his own line of paint. That's amazing. That's amazing. What a great story. I mean, he's he was a college student. He was, like, part-time at Sherwin-Williams. Sherman and, like, look, I get it's a very... We're living in a new world, so you can't really blame Sherwin-Williams, but I think most people on the face of it would say, maybe that wasn't a great decision, but you know what? Competitors, other people saw it as an opportunity. Yes. And they took advantage of it, and now they've got an audience of over a million people. I mean, that screams to me that Sherwin Williams, uh, just extraordinarily old-fashioned, maybe, uh, or extraordinarily conservative in their thinking, or something. Don't but know anyway, what who is. knows? But, yeah, I mean, yeah. look, it's it's hard to blame a company like that because I do think he was really toeing the line in terms of creating content on company. But time. he did say that a lot of this he bought himself and he was doing it. Is yeah. it you know, like, so what? I can see it in both in both if, ways. If you've got a queue of dangerous precedent, and though. you're mixing paint for TikTok, fair enough. Yeah. But I'm not sure that was the case. So just think, it's like, it's like when, you know, it's like, the, it's just hugely short-sighted. Yeah, anyway. I think it's, listen, I think it's debatable because you can see it from Sherman Williams' point of view as well to say like, oh, okay, yeah, like maybe he's distracting from serving customers and all that. But I think really most people would side with yeah. with Tony and they would say like, listen, Sherman Williams, like they, he has a lot of, I mean, they could have more than doubled yeah, yeah, their yeah. social following if, for yeah. instance, they had said, oh my God, like maybe you come work on our social team mm. or yes. get hired by the agency or anything. Absolutely. But they did not extend that olive branch. They no. instead took a pretty hard line, but again, like, it's a happy ending, so, yes. you know, good for him. Well, you did it. You've wasted another perfectly good half an hour or so with Rob and Jen and the Everybody Hates Your Brand podcast. Again, you can find us on everybodyhatesyourbrand.com and your podcast platform of choice. Have a week. Take great, great care and be vigilant. Thank you.